Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In 2020, events have again shone a light on inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is a product of policyforum.net and we're based at Crawford School of Public Policy, the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. Have you considered taking the next step in your career? And if so, one of our graduate programs might be the perfect stepping stone for you. Crawford School offers a wide range of courses and degrees available to give you the confidence and skills to take a leading role in public policy. You can check them out at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. Now, on Tuesday night, the Australian government delivered the long-awaited federal budget. Postponed in May due to the pandemic, this was the government's attempt to cushion the huge blow that's been dealt to the country by the coronavirus crisis. We already know that government has spent big. Last financial year, Australia's net debt was just $491 million, but that's now set to peak at nearly $1 trillion, or 44% of GDP in June 2024. That's a figure unthinkable just months ago, particularly from a government that was engaged in a seemingly single-minded pursuit of a budget surplus. There's a smorgasbord of stimulus and spending items in the budget, tax cuts, instant asset write-offs for businesses, the job maker hiring credit, additional cash payments for seniors, further spending for the National Disability Insurance Scheme and much more. But the cost of the COVID-19 crisis extends beyond dollars and cents. While Australia's response to the crisis has been better than most, the country has still seen tragic loss of life and the devastating psychological toll of isolation and uncertainty. And while some of Australia's most vulnerable citizens were given temporary respite with the introduction of increased social assistance payments in the early days of the crisis, many are anxious about what lies ahead in what looks to be a very long road to recovery. Now, on yesterday's Democracy Sausage, you would have heard Mark Kenny and the team talk about a few 
few of the issues that span out of the budget, particularly around tax and budget politics and the demographic challenge that Australia is facing. But on today's Policy Forum pod, we are going to be asking, is the budget doing enough to support the Australians most in need as the country tries to rebuild from the pandemic? And to discuss one of the most important budgets in Australian history, we've invited a stellar panel of some of our favourite experts and regulars to come in and join us today. Um, first of all, I'd like to welcome John Falzon, OAM. He's a senior fellow at of inequality and social justice at per capita. He's a sociologist, a poet and a social justice advocate and was national CEO of the St. Vincent de Paul Society from 2006 to 2018. Hello, John. G'day, Martin. And welcome to, uh, welcome back to Dr. Anna Greta Hunter. She's a clinical senior lecturer at the ANU School of Medicine and a staff specialist at Canberra Hospital. Hello, Anna Greta. Hi, Martin. Thanks for having me back. It's great to have you back again. And of course, last but certainly not least, Professor Sharon Bessel. She is the uh, Director of Gender Equity and Diversity at Crawford School. She heads the Children's Policy Centre and she's the co-lead of the Individual Measure of Multidimensional Poverty Project, which we've been doing a, a podcast series of recently. Hello, Sharon. How are you? I'm Martin. I'm good. It's great to be here and very exciting to be in the office. So welcome back to all three of you. Australia is facing a huge budget deficit in the 2020-21 financial year. That's the highest underlying cash deficit since the Second World War. Yet the government has decided that the way out of this is to commit to further tax cuts and the uh, job maker subsidy, which will see Australian businesses receive up to $200 a week to hire young Australians that were previously on job seeker. Other budget items included uh, $3.9 billion for the National Disability Insurance Scheme, a cash payment of $500 to seniors, and 23,000 in-home aged care packages. I just want to get a bit of a sense of the reaction in the room. Can I just go around and ask what what you what you made of the budget? Were you surprised by the announcements in it? Perhaps I want to Greta, if I start with you. I thought the budget was underwhelming and I have to say I wasn't particularly surprised by the contents. I thought we, we had in the weeks leading up to the budget uh, on Tuesday, we'd been given a fair taste of what was coming, particularly in terms of social policy and things like health. Um, there's been some small surprises, I think, as people dig through the finer details. So uh, issues like language testing for visa applications um, will start to come out. And so there may be some some things that come or details that become more apparent, I think, as we digest the data. Um, but I have to say it's, it's, it was underwhelming. It, uh, the absence of vision was as expected from my perspective. John, were you underwhelmed as well? It's really what we saw coming, uh, a budget of uh, uh, short-term cash and long-term uncertainty. Uh, it, was, it was well and truly a triumph of ideology over common sense and the common good. We, we were basically asked as a nation to place our trust in the discredited theory that uh, given the right mix of tax breaks and deregulation, the jobs will come and the wealth will trickle down. Uh, now, we've been... Uh, told this this uh, this promise uh, by neoliberal ideologues for the past forty years, and for the past forty years we've listened hard for the sound of the wealth trickling down, but all we've ever heard is the sound of the excluded still waiting. And this budget, uh, you know, it's truly a budget without a heart because it keeps the excluded still waiting. It's a budget that boosts inequality. 
I do want to return to that topic of trickle-down economics soon. But first, let me hear from you, Sharon. What was your take on it? So I I think the three of us are probably in wild wild agreement on many of these things. I guess for me, I was unsurprised. As John points out, I think we could see this coming. And interestingly, we could also see the big spending coming, um, but also the way in which that money was going to be spent. But while I was unsurprised, I was disappointed. I think we have had, as a result of this awful pandemic, a once-in-a-generation opportunity to really rethink the kind of society that we want to have and to think about how we can tackle some of the challenges that we've been facing. And for me, there are two absolutely fundamental challenges that Australia faces. And one is is climate change, which of course is a global issue, and the other is inequality. And so how could we have addressed those things through this pause that we've had, this imposed pause of the pandemic, and then through a budget that is spending a trillion dollars. That's a phenomenal amount of money to invest in a society, but it's not actually an investment. So I think it's incredibly disappointed because we don't see key things like investment in renewable energies, in renewable um, forms of energy that will lead to employment. We don't see issues that are fundamentally addressing inequality in this society. Um, And so I think as John says it's it's very short term and it's really missed that opportunity to reimagine what a just society might look like and to grasp that and make it happen. I'm going to come back to you a little later on what that reimagining should have looked like and what a just society might have looked like out of this budget. But first of all, let's get into the weeds a little on some of the economic assumptions on the budget itself. The budget is based on some pretty optimistic predictions about economic growth and about the availability of an effective vaccine. Uh, Specifically, the government is anticipating GDP growth to bounce back to 4.75% in 2021-2022. John, do you think that's a realistic assessment? I think we've got to be very careful about those uh, forecasts. I don't think we can treat them as assumptions. What we've got to uh, look squarely at is the current reality. And what's the current reality? Uh, Nearly two and a half million of us are unemployed or underemployed. Uh, Nearly half of us who are in the workforce are in insecure work. Uh, those of us on Job Seeker and Job Keeper have already had to taste that that bitter medicine of austerity, and there's no sense of certainty for the future. Uh, you know, if you are excluded from the labour market, uh, so you know these are the realities that we need to deal with now. Uh, and and as Sharon has mentioned, you know, cli- cli- the climate emergency that's an urgent reality now, pandemic or no pandemic, uh, but. You know, to, to, to have, uh, to, to rely on optimistic forecasts at the expense of those who are suffering now, the precarity that has not only been caused by the, the recession, but that has been deliberately engineered by policies that punish people who are excluded. Uh, you know, this is unforgivable, uh, in, uh, in a government. Anna Greta, one of the assumptions that this budget makes is based on the fact that a vaccine will be fully in place by late 
2021, with social distancing restrictions carrying on until that's available, and the expectation that outbreaks will occur, but they'll be largely contained. Is it premature to rely on having a vaccine fully rolled out by the end of next year? I think we're still learning so much about this virus. We've only, we haven't even had 12 months of experience about uh, the experience of, of this novel coronavirus. Um, we don't understand what recovery looks like in terms of a five-year recovery after infection. Uh, we're still coming to terms, I think, with the best way to control the infection on a population basis, and we're seeing that play out uh, very in a very real way in Victoria and particularly in Melbourne. Um, and so I, I think the, the reputable uh, assessments about vaccines is that we should be approaching that with caution and the likelihood of having a guaranteed vaccine that is a durable vaccine and highly effective across a large proportion of the population is uncertain. You know, the vaccine trials that are running are looking at efficacy rates of between 50 and 70% as a success for a vaccine. And then how does that actually play out when you're using that vaccine in a population? The, the science is complex. The infectious disease is, is complex, the medicine is complex. And so I, I, I think that um, to build that assumption into the model is potentially a little foolhardy. And it reminds me that this economic crisis that we're in is unique. And the principles of economics, which I'm certainly not expert in, uh, but it gets you thinking a lot about supply and demand and about growth as, as economic ideas that we have as a goal. And the goal behind the budget appears to be stimulating growth. Um, and stimulating growth depends on both supply and demand. And both of those things, both supply and demand, have been uh, extraordinarily altered by this pandemic, okay, through either factories not being able to work or being shut down through outbreaks of infection or through populations of people not able to work because of control mechanisms to, to contain the infection. And so uh, this is what I would have liked to see. This is the conversation that I think we should be having is around the, these fundamental principles of growth about supply and demand and about what we should be doing with our Time, how we'd like to look after our community, how what sort of things we think are meaningful in, in our lives. And I share Sharon's uh, thought that this is an extraordinary moment in time to be really questioning the goal, role of government and how we can, how we can use this moment uh, to make our best future. Sharon, perhaps unsurprisingly, the government has focused a lot of its attention on, in this budget on job creation. We previously mentioned the job maker scheme, which is aiming to get people off job seeker payments into and into the workforce. And there's been some spending targeted at those who experience disadvantage, notably through the 3.9 billion in funding for the NDIS. But so far, there won't be any more money for the struggling residential aged care sector, which of course has been terribly hard hit in the in the pandemic. In your opinion, is the budget targeting those that actually need it most? There are some extraordinary gaps in this budget. So you mentioned aged care and the the crisis that we've seen in aged care is not new in the context of this pandemic. We've known that there has been a, a crisis in aged care for years and years that we have failed to address. We've seen um, that crisis get worse as the federal government has had more responsibility around aged care. And we've seen what happens to that crisis in the context of pandemic. And the, the, what has happened is that people have died. That's pretty awful medicine to swallow, that some of our most vulnerable community members are dying because of the mismanagement of aged care over many years. So the fact that there hasn't been a focus, not just in budgetary terms, but in terms of the policies and the regulation around aged care and how we fix that, I think is extraordinary. 
And that does go beyond just the dollars that are involved. And of course, there is funding that is that is needed in aged care. But some of the principles underpinning the approach to aged care, I think, are extraordinary in a democratic society. The idea that we actually lock up older people and they cannot leave those facilities that they, they are isolated from their communities and from their loved ones. These are values that I think we really need to fundamentally question that, that go way beyond the, the funding mechanisms that are in place. Um, but more broadly, if, if we think about how this budget is, is targeted, there are some extraordinary gaps. There's been a real focus on trying to get young people into the job market. And I mean, I think that is actually important and the focus on young people really matters. But I see some real inconsistencies here. So on the one hand, it's how do we get young people into paid employment? But we are not putting any more money into childcare. So for that cohort of people from their late teens into their mid-30s, for for women in that cohort, what matters most in terms of being able to enter paid employment? It's having affordable, high-quality childcare that you can pay for, but also feel comfortable about leaving your child in. You know, I think this is one of the things that we often miss from the childcare debate. It's affordability, but it's also knowing that it's high quality, that your child is looked after and loved. So there are a whole lot of issues that are missing around childcare here. And the other thing when we're talking about younger people is, yes, we need to think about employment, but what is the most critical crisis facing young people at the moment? And that's the future around climate change and the climate emergency. And again, that's missing. So we have this really very patchy approach to trying to support young people where we're relying entirely on getting people into paid employment, but we're missing these really fundamentally important things about people's lives now and into the future. Isn't that interesting just to see the commonality between aged care and childcare, the, the, the way in which we value the caring profession, okay, the, the nurses and the uh, assistants in nursing who care for our aged care resident population, and the way in which we've funded aged care, which is potentially improving the amount of money that's being made out of that, extraordinary discussions around the financing of it, which really undervalues the work that's being done in caring. And it's the same in childcare, that we extraordinary investment to, to care for each other. It's been one of the messages of the coronavirus pandemic is that as a community, we are re- we're ready to do extraordinary things to look after each other. Um, and that was the opportunity that was presented to this government with this budget. Uh, and it is, it's profoundly disappointing to see it missed. Yeah, I mean, we seem to have put a dollar value around care and have tried to profitise care rather than thinking deeply about an ethic of care. Yep. And and you're right, Anna Greta, we've seen this happening in communities, in the streets around us. Um, so it is a, a tragic missed opportunity not to really rethink what our society means and then how we how we support that through the budget and through other mechanisms. And when, when you think in aged care of the obscene profits that are being mm. made while the people uh, in those facilities are, uh, you know, subject to absolutely unconscionable neglect and the workforce is absolutely exploited and insecure. Uh, you know, this is something that, that none of us should countenance. John, we talked there about some of the sort of blind spots in the budget, some of the things, the seemingly obvious things that have been missed. 
And in a normal year from this government, you would expect that they would say money is limited, they're going to spend it on what they think is is a priority. But this was a huge spending budget and it was a huge opportunity to rethink the type of society that we actually want going into the future and what it might look like coming out of the coronavirus crisis. Why do you think the government didn't take that? Oh, look, I think it's, you know, I think we've got to stop talking about um, uh, things being missed or left out. I think this is a very deliberate framing, uh, a very deliberate attempt uh, in the first instance uh, to prepare for the next election, hence the, the trinkets and baubles that have been distributed. Uh, secondly, to uh, reward mates and punish enemies. Uh, and, and thirdly, uh, to, to embed... Uh, some of those neoliberal uh, values of uh, put, reducing labour costs, uh, disciplining the working class, including those who've been residualised, uh, dismantling uh, the public sphere, social infrastructure. Um, I mean, neoliberals hate the public sphere because it reeks to them of democracy, uh, you know, the democratisation of life. Uh, you know, they hate it, especially with us in it. And so to me, it's absolutely no oversight. It's not a mistake that, you know, the, you know no serious investment in First Nations communities no, uh, a refusal to address the recession's disproportionate impact on women, a rejection of the of the really promising possibility of a care-led recovery, uh, a refusal to make the the much needed uh, you know, massive investment in education. Uh, from early childhood education, uh, you know, which which really should be universal and free. You know, it would have a huge economic and social impact if that were the case. Public school education is is being grossly underfunded, uh, you know, at the expense of largesse to private schools that have absolutely no need of those public resources. And then, of course, you know, to talk about uh, you know jobs for young people and not talk about TAFE. Uh, is just absolute, you know, it just beggars belief. Uh, you know, this should be treated as a national treasure, uh, not to be denuded the way it has been. And then, you know, I don't need to, to talk to, to you about the, the, the betrayal of the higher education sector. Uh, you know, universities have just been punished big time. So, you know, education, another area. And then, of course, social housing. Uh, you know, absolute unanimity. Uh, across uh, the, the you know, experts from from uh, from from academia, from the community sector, from the union movement, from the even the business community, saying a massive ingest, injection in social housing would be an incredible uh, economic stimulus. It's also much much needed. Uh, you know, Hurry uh, estimates that we've got a, a shortfall of over four hundred and thirty thousand homes. Uh, you know, this cries out for a bold national vision. This is the kind of vision, visionary thing that we would have loved to have seen at this incredibly important juncture. And, and what do we get? You know, zero. We, we get, we get, you know, belief in the trickle down theory. Um, you know, we, we, all the government could bring itself to do was to tell us to keep calm and wait for the wealth to trickle down. All right. Well, I want to drill down a little more into the kind of messages that the government is sending with uh, its priorities in the budget. But this seems like a good point to take a quick break. So we'll be back in just a second. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists, and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Okay, welcome back. Let's talk a little more about the message the government is sending with this budget. The budget is heavy on tax cuts and businesses will benefit largely from asset write-offs. The changes also mean that any losses incurred up to June 2022 can be offset against prior profits made in the last two years. And on the other side, the government isn't planning any increases to the job seeker rate which will return to pre-pandemic levels in December when the coronavirus supplement ceases. Sharon, what do you think the message the government is sending in its budget? Well, I think John summed it up quite beautifully before the break. Um, I think what we see are a particular set of values, a particular ideology at play, which is which is not surprising. It's around the importance of the market, of a market-led recovery, the importance of um, both deregulation, but where you have investment, investment in in, in the private sector and in business, um, and a faith that that will work. Um, but and and I think there's a short termism around it as well because we don't see any serious thinking about the long term, about the kind of investment. You know, John talked about social housing. You know, there's a long term vision that could be fundamental to the recovery. Um, Anna Greta talked about a, a care led recovery. Again, there's a long term vision. But I think what worries me most, and when you talk about the the cuts to to job seeker and you know the possibility at some point of returning um, to the kinds of of levels that we saw at, at New Start, it's the lack of humanity that really concerns me about that. Um, and a lot of the research that I do is with children who are experiencing disadvantage. And, you know, before the pandemic, we, we talked with children about their experiences of living both in low-income families but in marginalised families, often where there was a reliance on benefits. And we're talking 10-year-old children who are worried about increases in rents. We're talking about 10-year-old children who know the cost of petrol per litre or what a of milk costs. And they know that because they can't afford it, or they know the trade-offs that their families are making to afford those essentials. I cannot understand how we as a society and how our government as our leaders are prepared to countenance a society where so many children live like that. No, we've got nearly 18% prior to the pandemic, nearly 18% of Australian children living below the poverty line. This is just not acceptable. So we have to challenge and rethink the kinds of values that we've allowed to frame our society. 
because there is such a deep humanity to what we're allowing to happen. And investing in that makes economic sense. It, it really does. It makes big economic sense, not not in the short term and in the longer term. Um, you know, it resonates then through generations. We know children who grow up in a situation that you describe, and that's a large proportion or large minority of our current uh cohort of children, that the health impacts of that resonate for decades into their adult life. And that then is reflected in the health budgets that we need to spend. And so the potential for cost saving by changing uh, towards a much more compassionate and caring environment, uh, they're significant. John, on Tuesday, following the budget announcement, you said that the budget through its reliance on tax breaks and deregulation was typical of a neoliberal trickle-down approach to economics. And you mentioned that earlier. Over the last six months, a lot of uh, conservative governments around the world have had to be much more sort of Keynesian in their approach to economics. They've had to pump large, large amounts of money into their economies to kind of keep them up, keep them afloat. Do you think that this budget was an attempt to sort of reset for the government in its kind of core conservative values? Absolutely. Um, so, you know, it, it was uh, a glimmer of hope. Um, to see at the the beginning of the pandemic the fact that the government uh, listened to the union movement and instituted a wage subsidy, uh, profoundly flawed though it was, leaving out big chunks of the workforce uh, that you know that uh, you know was was uh, quite quite a deliberate exclusion in my view, uh, but still. We, we had a wage subsidy there and we know uh, the, um, the, the, the fact that it has cushioned the blow uh, to the economy and most importantly to, to, uh, to workers' lives. Uh, and secondly, that uh, massive and, and uh, you know, much needed boost through the coronavirus supplement to the job seeker payment, uh, we know the data is there that it, it literally lifted people out of poverty. And we, we also know that the, the recent cut has plunged many back into poverty. And, uh, you know, as we have all agreed, uh, what does the future hold? You know, that sense of uncertainty of economic and social insecurity uh, for people who uh, are unemployed, uh, people who are, um, uh, you know, all of those who have been residualised by the labour market, um, uh, you know, appear to, I suppose, be, be punished um, for their own exclusion. Yeah, it's sort of like, you know, you're seeing this, uh, an intervention into people's lives to discipline and very paternalistically control uh, and uh, infantilise, in many cases, people because they are deemed of no value, you know, a bit like what you were saying before, Sharon, about, about you know, no monetary value attached to to caring. So if it, if it hasn't got a, a, a an economic valorisation, it's devoid of any kind of, of social valorisation. Now, this is... This is the market taking over society. You know, I like to think of, you know, th think of a, a village and there's a marketplace. It might be in the centre of the village and that's lovely. You know, everyone sees it as a, a really positive thing. Um, but when the marketplace takes over the entire village and there is no, there's nothing left but market, when the market invades every corner of our lives, uh, th this is dehumanising because uh, profit 
comes before people. And so it's no surprise that this budget is seeing a, a, a real snapback to that vicious ideology that dehumanises people. Dehumanises people because they are outside the market somehow in, in, the, in the view of the government. And of course, we've got to think more broadly of the working class in, you know, completely from from those on on good incomes to those on highly precarious low incomes, as a whole, the working class continues to be punished with the greater threat of uh, of insecurity, and the, you know there's no no indication of a move away from wage stagnation, let alone uh, you know uh, any promise of an increase to social security payments. It's all focused on greater profitability, and somehow by magic, even though it's never happened, the wealth's going to trickle down, and and we should just be patient. Uh, but you know, as I said, yeah, all we hear is the sound of the excluded still waiting, and and yet we're we're meant to be grateful for whatever crumbs fall from the table. And it's not just by way of uh, you know excluding um, you know some some of those big ticket items that that um, I I listed earlier. There were you know, some incredible instances of of cruelty. You know, cutting cutting forty one point three million from homelessness services. Uh, yeah, even I was astonished by that. You know, um, to to um, to to reduce the refugee intake, um, to to uh, instigate this uh, you know, five hundred hours hours of of uh, English language classes for for people on partner visas you know all acts of cruelty against those perceived to be not the enemies of the people but the enemies of the government which in turn is is framing itself as an enemy of the people i think one of the perhaps concerning things about the budget is that it is a very big spending budget and i think most people would agree that in this context that was necessary but it's it does mean that we now have will or will have by 2024 the trillion dollar debt so that requires repayment but it also locks us into a particular trajectory so we've now accepted almost a particular pathway because of the amount of spending rather than being able to take on some of these issues and have a genuine national conversation around what kind of society we want rather than locking ourselves onto a particular pathway that really need, leaves no space for thinking differently about the importance of care, about social housing, about how we support people who are excluded and how we how we. we create inclusion. So I think that's perhaps one of the most worrying parts about it, that it's locking us onto a pathway. I mean, it strikes me that there is, on what you're saying, there is a dissonance here insofar as we talked about, Sharon, you talked about the amount of children that uh, are living in poverty, staggering figure, almost one in five. The unemployment rate is predicted to peak at 8%, but of course we know that the underemployment rate is very much is very much higher than than that yet the government has opted for tax cuts as a means to sort of uh, rebuild the economy but it strikes me that a lot of those people who are excluded who are suffering make up a, a large percentage of Australia so how is this budget likely to play politically given that so many of uh, the Australians who will be voting are those same Australians who are actually suffering. Look, I, I think 
that's really hard to predict. Um, the idea of tax cuts has become such a, I think, John, you referred to it as a, as a bauble or a shiny thing. I think the idea of a tax cut has become so embedded in our psyche as something that benefits us all that there's a, a kind of a particular aura around tax cuts that, that plays very well with the electorate. Um, but I think you're right, Martin. There are large numbers of people that are really being left behind. The timing will be all important in terms of when the election is and how we're starting to feel some of these issues bite. Um, I do think that where we we may well see um, a backlash against the, the approach that the government's taking is from women. Um, you know, we know that women have been really deleteriously impacted in terms of employment, in terms of the amount of care work that they've they've taken on with school lockdowns and so on. Uh, we know that domestic violence has has spiked um, during the pandemic. So we see women being really negatively impacted, but we see no concern whatsoever um, within the 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 budget or the government's policy more broadly about gender equality. Um, and this is quite extraordinary from a gov or from a country that really pioneered some of the the leading approaches globally to gender equality. You know, we had in the 1970s an office for women, we had women's budgets in place for many years that were designed to prevent uh, budgets being put in place that discriminated against women. So I think there are significant parts of the electorate, like half that half that are women, that are likely to um, to see this budget as leaving them out entirely. Certainly, if you're unemployed or in precarious work, as John says, you're not going to see this budget as supporting you. Uh, but I think in terms of the, the electoral cycle, timing is going to be all important. And some of these cuts have been very carefully timed, uh, with some of the, the tax cuts being claimed at the end of the tax year. Year, which may well align with an election. I mean, I, I think we uh, you see that there is a discomfort amongst those who are receiving ta- tax cuts. There's a fair number of people commenting that they don't need those tax cuts. In fact, that narrative was present at the last budget last year. Uh, people saying actually oh, this this money could go somewhere else and be used much more wisely. Uh, but as we see inequity grow, and and I shared John's concern on this quite deeply. What do we, how do we see that play out in terms of the politics? I, I might be making assumptions here, but I think you see that play into the sorts of um, moderately crazy-looking politics we see in places like the United States and partly in the UK, uh, where we're making angry decisions with government rather than making constructive decisions that are future-minded. Um, and that's what probably what worries me the most is I'd, I'd like to see the revolution come. I'd like to see us all work together to uh, to to make uh, the, a country which cares for us for each other, that respects each other, that offers at least an adequate level of dignity to every single Australian, and including housing. But I think more likely we're going to see anger grow. And anger can be so politically difficult in the world that we're in at the moment that it could be a really difficult time ahead. Anna Greta, I want to stay with you. The budget didn't give any clear indication of whether Australia will achieve net zero carbon emissions. Uh, but it does include the funding promise to renewable energy support agencies, which is supposed to focus on the development of low carbon technology. Should climate change mitigation have been a bigger part of Australia's economic recovery plans? I guess the the summer we've just had feels like it was light years ago, doesn't it, really? Um, 
But if there was a large proportion of the Australian uh, population, and we know, in fact, it's a really small number of people who don't, don't, who don't share concerns around climate change, but if there was a larger proportion, that, that was certainly altered in a radical way by the summer that we went through with the, the bushfires. Half the Australian population, it's estimated around 12 million people were exposed to hazardous levels of air pollution from, from the, the bushfire season. And so it is one of the biggest threats that we face. Uh, we're up against extraordinary period of uh, economic uncertainty and social change. But over the next decade or so, it, climate change and the, the changing climate, as the government prefers to describe it, is really going to have a profound impact on the health and well-being um, and our, on our society more broadly. And so this was this was the budget where we had an opportunity to really invest in that. Um, there were so there are so many effective, non-controversial, cost-effective, you know, growth-focused uh, energy transition models that are out there, and and the government really failed to uh, take that on board um, and to, to take that opportunity. I think particularly concerning though is that a lot of the economic investment from a business perspective will be going towards mining, and we know that a lot of that mining will then increase global carbon dioxide emissions. And so our federal budget has just increased global carbon dioxide emissions uh, and is contributing then in a very significant way ongoing to uh, to climate change. Okay. Uh, let me stay with you for one other topic, Anna Greta. The COVID-19 pandemic has obviously left people's mental health in dire need and care providers struggling to meet that particular demand. And as part of the budget, the number of Medicare-funded psychological services will be doubled um, and telehealth services subsidies will be extended to March next year. Are things like that going to help alleviate the burden on people and care providers? I think those are really important uh, contributions from the government. I think telehealth has helped uh, people access medical services where they otherwise wouldn't have been able to. I think that's been really important. When I look after uh, people, and I'm still working as a doctor, I'm seeing amongst the community uh, subtle and slow deteriorations in our health this year. Most of us have been spending more time at home. There's been a change in our exercise pattern. I have to confess in my office, my, my subjective experience is that it's around 20%, sorry, around 80% of us have gained weight. Most of us have put on a couple of kilos. They're called corona kilos. So if we reflect and just take the pulse of the health of our community at the end of 2020 compared to the end of 2019, as a population, we're not as well as we were. We're not as healthy as we were. And so the investment strategy there requires some creativity, I think. It's a really extraordinary opportunity for our Department of Health and for our, for our health service to invest in preventative care and to really think about how to support a community that is up against a range of challenges that haven't been faced before. And I, so I think that's one. That's another missed opportunity, but it's another way that we could potentially reframe the the discussion is towards thinking about how we look after each other, how we can foster community care and responsibility through a pandemic which is ongoing. We haven't fixed this problem yet. I don't have the experience of seeing patients that Anna Greta mm -hmm. does, but I do see our students um, here at the ANU. And I think we're seeing that slow deterioration in students' sense of well-being and resilience as well. I think when this pandemic started and we went into lockdown, it's kind of like, we'll get through this. We'll all get through this together. But it's now been a very long time. I think we're really starting to see some people struggle greatly. And alongside that, with what I'm seeing amongst young people who are studying, are the messages from the government around 
what they think of the university sector, that there is no investment in this sector, there's no value and worth placed on this sector, um, and that some types of knowledge and learning are completely disregarded as having any value. So, you know, that again adds to that mental anguish that young people are feeling about what they want to make of their lives. We see alongside of that the only emphasis in support or the primary emphasis in supporting young people about getting them into work, even if it is precarious, low-paid work at 20 hours a week. And so I think, you know, if you put all of these things together, we see a budget that claimed to be concerned about young people because of the focus on employment support. But we see these broader counter messages that are really undermining young people's well-being, but also undermining the things that they will often really value, both at the moment, but in terms of the kinds of futures they want to carve out for themselves. So it's not surprising that we're seeing that erosion in well-being when these are the kinds of messages that we're seeing coming out um, around what's valued and what's not. Yeah, no, there was a study actually published from the ANU team um, looking at uh, the mental health effect, impacts of the coronavirus. It's the, the first of a longer-term cohort study. Um, and if I'm interpreting the information correctly, it looks like loneliness is a really dominant driver for adverse mental health. And so do we have structures in this budget that help us to address loneliness, to improve social interconnectedness? And do we know that that improves health and wellbeing? Yes, we do. We know that. Um, and so th- th- this is this is the missed opportunity. This is the absence of vision. This is particularly concerning that it looks like it's a 12-month plan and that it's not imagining what we might be going through over the next five or 10 or even 25 years. Um, and so we had an extraordinary opportunity to improve that health and we've we've missed it. And it's a very expensive 12-month Very plan. expensive 12 months, absolutely. <laughs> so this has been a fascinating discussion and thank you to all three of you. We are going to have to draw it to a close. But before we do, I want to do, I want to pick up on this whole thing about imagination and give you a bit of an exercise in imagination. Now, we know that expenses for 2020 to 2021 are likely to be in the region of $670 billion. So I'd like to ask all of you, if you were treasurer and, uh, you know, by the power vested in me as host of Policy Foreign Pod, I am going to appoint you as uh, as treasurer for a second. Um, how would you have spent the money? You've got $670 billion to play with. Where would be your spending priorities? Perhaps, Anna Greta, if I start with you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's actually a fabulously good question. I think it's the question we should all be asking. I think we should be uh, starting, in fact, by having as many community conversations about that exact question as we can have. Um, I think it's really time to engage as many people as possible in in what we do with our money and why we do it. And so that would be what informs what uh, how, how I'd use that money. I would certainly start by uh, working with communities. And I think, you know, community work actually underpins a lot of the climate change response. We know that adaptation strategies or work around uh, working with communities is really important in responding to extreme weather. Uh, so investments like community-based uh, renewable energy projects, they uh, provides investments and resources that are shared within communities. And Helen Haynes has got some great policy work out at the moment on this. So I'd start with renewable energy investment because I think that's a good source of long-term employment. It's a nice way to engage communities into the way in which their cities and their spaces run. I would make sure that everybody has access to uh, adequate levels of housing and resources that provide dignity. I'm using uh, Sharon Friel's statement, but dignity is so tremendously important. 
I probably question how much we need to work and I wonder if now is a good time to think about that relationship between work and caring and the social relationship that we all play and giving people an opportunity to work part-time in a way that means that the activities that that generate revenue can be shared. Uh, But we also at the same time value the caring relationships, so parenting, caring for older people, caring for younger people within the community. Um, And so that's some of how I'd spend the money. I've got a very long list. I'd be very happy to uh, to give advice. Well, that's a good budget speech. Sharon, what about you? You've got $670 billion burning a hole in your pocket. What are you going to do with that? So I think the first thing that I would want to do if if I was treasurer um, would probably be rely on advice of experts and, 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 and others, but I would want to have a conversation. But to me, there are three things, and I think this really is, is echoing what Anna Greta just said, but there are three Cs that are fundamentally important that we need to be thinking about funding and supporting, and that's climate, care and community. And so around climate, it's the kind of things that, that, that Anna Greta said. It's about how we invest in renewable energy and how we make that work for us through research, through development, through innovation. How do we become um, a world leader in this area? And we have the capacity to do that so that we are actually creating jobs that are the jobs of the future and we're caring for the climate at the same time or we're dealing with the climate emergency at the same time. In terms of care, I think it's a great point that you make, Anna Greta, which is how much do we need to work and what are some of the trade-offs? What might a well-being economy look like if it's driven not by growth but by an ethic of care? So thinking particularly about how we support those people who Richard Titmus described in the 1950s as being at, at points of natural dependency in life, you know, children, older people, uh, people who are, are living with a disability, how do we support and care for those people so that they are not left behind, they don't become some of the excluded that John's talking about. Um, I think it's time in that context to have a serious conversation about something like a basic living income. You know, Elise Klein here at Crawford, John Quiggan and others have done work around that and have costed it. I think that's a conversation that we need to have. And how does that kind of approach um, to our social security and to our, our economic management contribute to a principle of care? And finally, how do we support communities and how do we invest in communities in a way that addresses this crisis of loneliness that, that people are facing? How do we connect communities so that they are able to support one another? Um, so those three C's of climate, care and community would be what would shape my thinking about funding. John, earlier you identified some of the public policy areas in dire need of investment, which actually didn't receive any, particularly, you know, notably Indigenous communities, the dire need that we have for public housing. So you, you've got $670 billion to play with. Where would you spend that money? Oh, look, I'm in furious agreement with, with uh, my my colleagues, uh, I have to say. Um, it's just, just a matter of how you frame it. Um, I, I guess, um, to me, um, you know, we've got to acknowledge that, uh, nothing gets, nothing gets fixed or healed in Australia, uh, without, uh, beginning with, uh, addressing the his- historical fact of colonisation. 
Uh, you know, it's the fundamental contradiction that we we must face as a nation if we're going to fix anything else. And so that that would be um, the first, the very first thing. And it wouldn't be a top down, you know, the opposite to the the dreadful Northern Territory intervention. Something that begins um, from uh, the First Nations peoples uh, saying uh, what it is that needs to change, rather than uh, non-Indigenous Australia uh, telling First Nations communities uh, what is best for them. Uh, you know, in in the the shocking and uh, disempowering and violent tradition of colonisation. So, uh, yeah, that will translate into a massive investment in First Nations communities, um, including housing, including uh, you know, all, all of the social determinants of health, including all of the things that are desperately needed uh, in order to address uh, our inco- unconscionable level of, uh, of incarceration of First Nations peoples and, and uh, deaths in custody. So um, that, that's number one. Uh, number two, I guess I'd frame very broadly uh, as um, social and economic infrastructure, uh, including a massive expansion of the public sector against the grain of increased marketisation and privatisation and outsourcing. uh, We're going to see the greatest level of accountability, of democracy, uh, of service to the people rather than uh, priority given to profit uh, through an expanded, uh, you know, an intelligently expanded uh, public sector. And so that covers, uh, you know, not not just, uh, you know, big physical um, economic infrastructure, that which is very important, including social housing, which I mentioned earlier, uh, but all the things we, we call social infrastructure, including um, including all of the, the, the you know, the, the foundational economy the the, uh, the 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 economy of caring um, including education including health uh, all of those areas uh, and social services of course and I'm reminded you know uh, in 1948 Nye Bevan uh, at the time of the of the, uh, the, the the creation of the National Health Service in Britain yeah you know, he famously said uh, I just I just love this he said social services give people a share of the national product in accordance with their need an absolutely revolutionary notion because it cuts the nexus between access to a service and income it's saying you know you should have access to what you need not to what you can afford which is which i think you know needs to be part of the way we think about that social and economic infrastructure which leads me to the third area uh, you know and and it goes to to what you were saying Anna Greta, about about rethinking work i think the you know, the whole area of of how we work and how we live that so including interconnectedness including um, you know, the the manufacturing of precarity you know, Judith Butler the great theorist you know she talks about you know, life is naturally precarious because you know we are vulnerable as humans we depend on the other uh, but precarity is a, a political intervention to ramp up that precariousness to a, to a level where it becomes uh, where people become subject to violence and injury uh, and and the in- inability to live life and that's what we're seeing through uh, the trickle down 
um, theory in practice. That's what we're seeing through that invasion of the market into every aspect of our lives. So we need to address, you know, how how we work to eliminate exploitation and insecurity in the workplace, uh, and to ensure that that you know, the simple way I like to put it is that all of us have a fair crack at happiness. Well, I have really enjoyed this discussion today. Lots of positive ideas around the table. So I want to thank all of you, Anna, Greta, John and Sharon for sharing your thoughts with us today. It's much appreciated. Listeners, what are your thoughts, ideas and concerns about the budget? Let us know. Our Facebook group is the direct line to our presenters, to other listeners and even some of our panellists. You can find us as Policy Forum Pod on Facebook. Or you can get in touch on Twitter where we're Apps Policy Forum, that's APPS Policy Forum. And of course, you can reach us the old-fashioned way via email at podcast at policyforum.net. Now, before we let you go, just a quick reminder that we've got the final episode of our special Making the Invisible Visible mini-series coming up next week. For those of you who have been listening, you'll know that throughout this six-part bonus series, we've been shining a light on poverty with researchers from Crawford School's Individual Measure of Multidimensional Deprivation Project. Uh, and on the final episode, host Artie Bettegeri welcomes back none other than Sharon Bessel uh, to talk about how the advent of the COVID-19 pandemic has affected poverty rates and how poverty is experienced. Are you keen to listen in? New episodes come out every Tuesday through the Policy Forum pod feed. So hit subscribe now to make sure you don't miss out and you can catch up on all the previous episodes on whatever podcast platform you listen to. Policy Forum Pod is, of course, available on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you can normally get your podcasts from. We'll be back with another episode of Policy Forum Pod next week, but until then, cheerio for now.